If you want to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy. Well, this morning is our second week in our study of Paul's letter to Timothy. Last week, we just looked at the first two verses and gave an overview of the, of the entire book. And I'll start just by a slight way of reminder that Paul is in Macedonia. He's writing to Timothy, who is stationed at the church at Ephesus, the very church that Paul planted, as recorded in the book of Acts. The church at Ephesus is a mature body. They had a fully functioning group of elders in, in Acts. Paul, on his way to Jerusalem, meets with them. And he reminds them about from house to house, day by day, in public and in private, he taught the entire counsel of God to them. This is a church with an apostolic foundation, sound doctrine. And Timothy, rather than being left as a pastor, is really Paul's man on the spot. Look to 1 Timothy 3, for what I suggest is the theme verse of the text, of the book. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, giving the, the main point of this book. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So there are things that Paul wants to do at the church. There's initiatives he wants to make. There's actions he wants to take, and he's afraid he might be delayed. And so Timothy is his man on the spot, his delegate, his representative, is tasked to do these things. And so in some senses, Timothy has a borrowed authority from Paul that is unrivaled by any church leader today. Um, Titus as well, which is why Paul can tell Titus to just appoint elders. And we talked about how no one in today's church, I believe, has the authority to just go around, okay, you're an elder and you're an elder. And No, but bodies of believers come to these types of conclusions. Um, and so Timothy's kind of in a unique place, and yet Paul's writing so that Timothy will know how to conduct himself in God's household, which is the church. And that's why this whole series is called Living in the Family of God. A term for household, family. I mean, isn't that wonderful? We are, as believers, as part of a local church, we are family. We're family in the big universal sense, but we're also family in the local church sense. This is God's household, God's family. And this letter is written so that we would know how to conduct ourselves, how to live in God's family. And so with that overview, let's dive into our text for today. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 to 11. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying 
or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let's pray. Lord God, we just pray that you would open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word. We just pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Lord, soften and till the hard soil of our hearts so that your word can be planted and bear much fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. The emphasis of this passage is Paul's charge to Timothy. And, and the title for today's message is Love and Doctrine and the Relationship Between the Two. But to start, let's look at the first point, the content of Paul's charge. The content of Paul's charge, and that content is sound teaching. That's the first blank, sound teaching. It's really clear, verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Paul's concern is doctrinal. He's concerned about the teaching. He's concerned about errors creeping in. Now this gives us the importance of sound teaching and qualified teachers. Paul's very concerned about sound teaching and qualified teachers. And this error that we're dealing with here in this section does not progress to the severity of some of the other things later in the book. One of the indicators for that is he doesn't name who these people are. He just names them certain persons. But if you just look at the end of chapter 1, Paul gives us an example of some people who are forever immortalized in infamy in Scripture. Look at verse um, 18. This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So whatever's going on in chapter 1, 3 to 11, has not progressed to the point where Paul needs to publicly name these people. And really, we're going to see, they're not engaged in heresy and, and deadly doctrine. They're just getting distracted with what Paul calls myths and genealogies. That's his concern. He doesn't want them to teach any other doctrine. Literally, the Greek word is just heterodoctrine, other teaching. And, and it, we can try to guess at what these myths and genealogies are. At the end of the day, we don't know. Um, it is likely something Jewish. Um, the extra-biblical books, like the Book of Jubilees, the Talmud, makes some of the big deals of the genealogies of some of the patriarchs. Other commentators have suggested that this is more of a Gnostic Greek origin. It, it doesn't matter. Paul doesn't specify. But these myths and genealogies, what they equate to, what they equal, is novelties. Novelties novelties. Doctrines that are just sort of 
new and exciting and fresh. And so they're not teaching heresy. They're just sort of losing the major. They're getting caught off in what if and perhaps and who knows and maybe. And in every generation, there's, there's going to be a market for that in the church. People coming up with some new secret they found in the Bible. So, you know, um, some recent examples might include things like the, uh, the Bible codes. You know, if we just take the words of the Bible and put them in a computer, out come secret messages. Or um, with the Da Vinci Code, these extra, the Gospel of Thomas and all these things. And what it just boils down to is speculation, who knows, perhaps, myths, speculations. And it distracts us from the main point. And, and to a lesser degree, the same thing can happen to us in the church. We can get caught up in some side extra Bible thing and get all wrapped up in it. And, and so if we're asking, well, how do you know if something that I'm excited about, some truth that I think I see in the Bible qualifies as one of these myths or genealogies? Well, point C, healthy doctrine is evidenced by the fruit that it bears. That's really the test. I, mean, I, I wrestled, I talked to some people here, I wrestled about trying to identify some of the things that I see even in the Christian world today that I think might qualify. And I finally came to the conclusion that since Paul doesn't specify what he's talking about here, it'd be far better for me rather to help you identify the characteristics of these things. These foolish, novel myths and genealogies, these these distractions to the Christian faith that can creep in and that people can get excited about and want to teach. And they're recognized by the fruit they bear. Negatively, um, they produce here speculations, worldliness, and divisions. Speculations right here, um, Paul says, to teach any different doctrine, verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship that is from God by faith. Go over to chapter 4, verse 7. Paul says, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. And that, and that word for irreverent really just means worldly, carnal. And in chapter 6, verse 4, they produce divisions. Really, we should start at verse 3 chapter 6. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth. So that's the fruit this stuff bears. You can know it by its fruit. You know a tree by its fruit. Is this healthy teaching? Well, the first question is, is it found in the Bible? Are we going to some source outside of the Bible? There's so many pulpits in America where something other than Scripture is being taught. And, and thankfully, with the history and the legacy that we have here, there's not much danger of that. But there still can be these peripheral things that creep in. And so the question is, okay, is it, is it producing speculations, divisions, quarreling? Or, point two, is it producing God's stewardship, which is what the, uh, the ESV translates the word as. It's a Greek word, oikos namos. We get our English word economics from it. Oikos house, 
Namas, law, house rule, house management. So economics is the management of something. Um, and here is this stewardship, this governing principle, and it, it fits into this context of the church being God's household. And so this teaching does not produce, this bad teaching does not produce the stewardship of the household that God is looking for, which is why the ESV translates it, the stewardship of God. And so the stewardship of God here, the blank, equals godliness, holiness, Christ-likeness. Take your pick. And I get that most clearly from chapter 4, 7 to 8. We already saw that. Where Paul says, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. There's your put off. Rather, train yourself for godliness. So it's, it's either this or that. Get away from, run away from silly myths. Train yourself for godliness. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Once the Lord has brought us to faith through his word and the gospel... What is his desire for us in this life? But growing in the image of his son. Growing in godliness. Growing in love for each other. That, that's, that's what teaching should result in. Good, sound, healthy, biblical teaching should result in growing holiness, godliness, Christ-likeness, love. So you know the tree by its fruit. And there's a danger here, even with things that are true, if they don't press on through to this stewardship of God, we're still in error. It doesn't have to be just myths and speculations. We can be discussing truth and still never move on past the argument and the debate to loving people. I'll, I'll borrow an illustration from Francis Chan. And he, and he talks about how when he tells his son, or I'll, in this case I'll use Abner, um, hi boy, if I were to call Abner into the living room and say, Abner, um, you need to go into your room and clean your room. He's three years old and he knows better than to come back to me and say, okay, dad, I memorized what you said. I can quote it in Greek. And Sophie and I got together and we had a study about what you said, about what it would look like to clean the room. Okay, did you actually clean the room? No. No, I didn't clean the room. We just talked about it. And Sophie was of the opinion that cleaning the room meant to start by picking the things up on the floor. And I said, no, no, if you understood the Greek, it means to start with the bed. And we've actually formed two denominations over how to clean the room. <laughs> okay, Abner, but has any actual room cleaning been done? No, no, we didn't get around to that. But, but some other toddlers are coming over later on today, and we're going to do a study about what you said. And it's, it's silly, but we can do this in the church. And I got to watch out for this first and foremost, because, you know, I, I got books, and I've had the opportunity to study Greek. And you can make this mistake that knowing things means doing things, and it does not. We're going to see that you need to know things before you can do things. But if, if this teaching does not result in the stewardship from God, God's plan for his church, which is growth in godliness, growth in holiness growth in love, growth in Christ-likeness, then it's, it's not serving its function, and it is unhealthy. That can be anything. I mean, think of an example of, of somebody who's, you know, cheating on his taxes, but is obsessed with talking about the finer points of Calvinism. At a certain point, like, put down Calvin and go pay your taxes. 
And we can get caught up in doctrines and never press on through to, to obedience and love. That, that's the point. So that's the content of Paul's charge. Timothy is to guard the teaching in the church, keep it pure. And then we get to the aim, the goal, the telos of Paul's charge, which is, and this is amazing, love. It probably doesn't sound amazing until you think about it, but here's what Paul has just tasked Timothy with doing. I want you to go to all the Bible studies. I want you to go to all the small groups. I want you to go to all the ABFs, and I want you to shut down with authority. He tells him to charge them. Anything that's speculative, anything that's outside of the Bible, it doesn't have to be heresy, anything that's not pressing through to God's stewardship, shut it down, Timothy. And you can imagine in practice that probably didn't look very loving. I mean, if, if you're one of these teachers, if you're all caught up in something, and then in comes Timothy with a letter from Paul and just says, okay, stop. This Bible study is closed. That's not going to feel like love. That's not going to sound like love. That's going to look actually kind of legalistic. That's going to look kind of severe, maybe judgmental, harsh. So when Paul says, and that's the title of this message, I'm really concerned about the doctrinal teaching. I'm really concerned that people don't start straying off into unhelpful topics. And it's because I'm really concerned about love. I want you to feel that tension. Because I, I sure felt it when I read this. I mean, look at verse 5 of chapter 1. The aim of our charge, which is referring back to verse 3, Paul's charge to shut down this bad teaching. The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So I want you to feel this tension because our world, if it thinks it's got its handles on anything, it thinks it understands love. The world can tell you, the Beatles can tell you that all you need is love. And there's millions upon millions of, of new artists and new songs echoing that refrain. The world thinks it has its hands on love, and the world certainly doesn't think it needs sound doctrine first. The world doesn't understand what, what on earth does stopping people from teaching unhelpful doctrine do with love. If anything, we might be tempted to think that love and doctrine are separated. You know, we can imagine the, the loving Christian who doesn't worry about doctrinal stuff. They're just not, they're loving people. And then you can imagine the stuffy, formal Christian who, who knows a lot of things and is unloving and cold. And, and it's true. You can know stuff and not do stuff. And that is a great danger. But Paul insists there's no loving without knowing stuff. Not in any true biblical sense. So we got to try to bridge this gap. How do you get from sound doctrine to love? How, what's the connection? How is that necessary? And there's an in-between step here because Paul doesn't just want any old love. According to verse 5, he wants love that is from or issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. So now we've complicated the issue even further because what Paul's assuming is if there is not sound teaching— there will not be pure hearts, good consciences, and sincere faith. And therefore, there will not be love. And that is why Paul says it's so vitally important, Timothy, that you go and control the teaching content. 
So we're going to work through these three things, pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. And in each one of these points, we're going to try to deal with two questions. How is doctrine essential for having these things? And how is having these things essential to having love? So for each one of these, we've got to figure out how is doctrine important to get a pure heart, to get a good conscience, to get a sincere faith? And how is a pure heart essential for love? How is a good conscience essential for love? How is a sincere faith essential for love? That, that's the assumption Paul is making in his reasoning. I'll say it again. Timothy, I left you at Ephesus to control the doctrine. I left you at Ephesus to make sure people didn't stray into unhelpful, controversial, unbiblical topics because I'm all concerned about love, Timothy. A love that comes from, and then he lists them. So Paul's assuming the foundation is truth, taught. Built upon that is the pure heart, the good conscience, the sincere faith. And that culminates in the love that Paul is concerned about. So that is the question. What is the relationship between love and doctrine? Love and truth. We'll, we'll try to cover this. First, he wants it from a pure heart. And a pure heart is a old biblical image. You think of David praying in Psalm 51, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. And it's, it's that cleansing that comes at salvation. And then the ongoing cleansing that comes as we confess our sins. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to purify us from all unrighteousness. So love has got to come from a purified heart. And Paul is saying doctrine is essential to get that. How does that work? Well, I think it's simple enough. There is no pure hearts without the gospel being proclaimed. There is no pure hearts without the truth of God about who Jesus is and what he did on the cross being announced. There is no pure hearts without regeneration and the new birth. And all of that depends upon a right declaration of the truth. So Paul's concerned about if the pulpit, if the teaching in the church is strayed, people will stop being saved and regenerate, and you'll have people in the church who don't have pure hearts. And these people aren't going to be able to love. And I think we get this, because while the world can do things that outwardly look loving, Jesus indicts them this way in Matthew 23, a familiar passage. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate. But inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee first clean the inside of the cup and the plate. That the outside also may be clean. See, we can try to clean up our outside. And there are people that look loving that way. But what Paul's saying is if inwardly you're not clean, it's going to contaminate whatever you think you've got that's called love. And it's not going to be what he's looking for and what is needed. So it's from a pure heart... And it's essential for love because if you're not born again, if you don't know Jesus, you're not going to love people the way you need to and the way you should. You're not going to be able to produce love that's not contaminated by your own sinfulness, by your own corruption. Secondly, from a good conscience. Paul wants 
good consciences to produce love and he assumes that doctrine teaching is essential for that this one's even easier to grasp the conscience as we've studied in Romans 14 I mean our Roman series is only as accurate as it is informed so you can have an uninformed conscience According to 1 Corinthians 8, you can have a weak conscience. And in Romans 14, there were some people who, because they were untaught, thought they could not eat meat. And so Paul says, well, then they can't eat meat. And so the accuracy of your conscience is completely dependent upon teaching. People need to be taught that certain things are allowable. Certain things are not allowable. People's consciences may convict them when they're not sinning. People's consciences may be leaving them alone when they are. And so right teaching is essential to informing consciences accurately so that they function properly. Well then, and how does that get us to love? Well, think about all the bad advice well-meaning people give because they don't know what's right and what's wrong. You know, advice that sounds something like this. Well, if you're not in love anymore, God wouldn't want you to be unhappy. Right? That sounds good. And I know well-meaning people say things like that. Your, your loving counsel, your acts of love, are only going to be useful if they're in accordance with truth. They're only going to be useful if you know what's right and what's wrong. You know, every parent knows you need to love their kid, but, well, how? How should I love my child when he's disobeying me? How should I love my child when he's fighting with his sister? And I've got to go to Scripture to find out what love looks like there. You know, we know we need to love, but until our consciences are informed and held captive by Scripture, we may not know how to love, what love looks like in a particular circumstance. And the conscience is huge in First Timothy. In chapter 4, verse 2, these false teachers have seared their consciences. Titus, he talks about a defiled conscience. And yet one of the qualifications for deacons is that they have a sincere, good conscience. Conscience is important because the conscience is your moral thermostat that God gave you to warn you when you're about to sin, to hold you back, to, to remind you this is the right path, this is the wrong path. But your conscience is only as accurate as it is informed. So you can misinform your conscience and do bad things that you feel fine about and feel terrible about doing some good things. And that's going to directly affect the way you love people. And finally, he wants this love from a sincere faith. Literally without hypocrisy. And this is the power for love. You, know, you, can, you can be pure on the inside. And you can know what love looks like. But if you're not acting in faith, if you're not trusting in God, if you're not united to the vine, it's going to lack power and it's just going to be your own human works. You're just going to sort of grit your teeth and try to make love. And it's not going to work. Not the way Paul wants it to. He, he wants all three of these ingredients there. Pure, regenerate hearts that have been purified through conversion, salvation, are ongoingly being cleansed and washed. Informed consciences empowered and fueled by the power of God through faith. I'll make an, I'll make an analogy to, to baking a cake. You know, if, if, if the bowl that you're mixing your cake in is filthy disease-ridden, it will contaminate the dough. It will contaminate the batter. And likewise, if, if your heart on the inside is filthy, like Jesus said, the, 
It's like a bowl that outwardly is clean, but inwardly is disgusting. It's going to contaminate everything that comes out. But you also need to have the recipe. You need to know what the ingredients are supposed to be. And so without an informed conscience, how do you know what ingredients constitute love? So you can have a clean bowl and don't have the recipe. You're still not going to be making a good cake. And finally, you can have a clean bowl and the right ingredients, but if that oven that you put it into doesn't have any gas, nothing's getting baked. And so unless God's Holy Spirit empowers us to live out love through faith, all the knowledge and all the purity in the world is still not going to produce love. So to, to reemphasize this relationship, Paul is assuming, again, that doctrine and teaching is an essential foundation for us to arrive at clean hearts, informed good consciences, and sincere faith, and that those three things are essential ingredients in generating Christian love, which is his end game. And so we want to say on the one hand, there is a danger of knowing things, but not pressing across to loving God and people. But there's an equally great danger of seeing, well, knowing things can be hard, and I've met some people who know stuff, and they're kind of jerks. I'll skip that, and I'll just go right over to loving people. That's equally dangerous. To get back to love and truth. Speaking the truth in love, what's more important? And again, it's like, well, which air, wing of the airplane is more important? Which blade of the scissors is more important? If I don't have love, Paul says, I can know everything. I'm just a clanging gong. But in Romans 10, Paul says, the Jews have a great zeal for God. And they're passionate. They're, they're enthusiastic. But it's not in accordance with knowledge. See, they missed their Messiah. So they're going to perish. The truth and love need to be united. And it needs to flow out of these things. It needs to flow out of these things. Third, Paul talks about the danger of ignoring his warning. Well, what's at stake negatively? Positively, what's at stake is love. A loving body. A body growing in Christian, Christ-like love. Negatively, there's the danger of wandering away from the truth. Wandering away from the truth. And pick it up in verse 6. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And so these people, the progression goes something like this. They get caught up in some peripheral, trivial side issue. And slowly they stop pursuing holiness. They stop bearing out that fruit of love. They just get obsessed with this thing. They, they're all about this topic and thing. And it's not producing good fruit. It's creating factions. And, and they just sort of wander away from the truth and end up somewhere over here. And, and the problem with that is not only do they wander away from the truth and empty talk, but B, they become self-deceived and self promotion, self-deception and self-promotion. They don't even understand that they're wrong. They don't even understand that they're missing the point. They're, they're self-deceived. See, once you, once you stop holding fast to the truth, you, you're a sitting duck for deception. So you can, you're in charge, you're responsible for holding on, holding fast to the truth, but once you start to loosen your grip, watch out. You won't even realize where you end up. They become self-deceived. And self-promotion, these people who, the, the sad irony is they've wandered away. And they don't even realize it. Actually want to make themselves teachers. 
they actually think they got something to share and say. That's why James warns us in chapter 3, verse 1, my brothers, not many of us should become teachers, for we know that those who teach will suffer a stricter judgment. That's the danger. If, if we don't hold fast to solid, biblical, healthy teaching, and we start getting obsessed with peripheral, novel, unbiblical speculation, myths, we won't realize when we get to a point where we have deceived ourselves, and worse yet, we'll actually go try to pass on our misinformation. We'll swelled up with pride. And that brings us finally to the last section of our text. These people who want to become law teachers. Well, Paul has guarding against Timothy throwing out the baby with the bathwater. If all of the problem in, in the Ephesian church is coming from Jewish teachers, most likely, who are misusing the Old Testament law somehow, after saying, stop it, Paul has to come on the other side and say, but the law is good. Don't, don't be ripping out your Old Testaments. The law is good. Let's, let's read that. Verse 8. Now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Then he goes on to list all different types of wickedness. So the gospel and the right use of the law. And I'll be honest, this is a huge topic. There are volumes upon volumes of what is the New Testament Christian's relationship to the law. So I'm going to try to keep it simple here. We've dealt with this in more detail in our series on Romans. Romans 7, Romans 13 in particular. You can go on our website. But Paul's point here is simple, right? Point A. The law does not govern the believer. He couldn't say it any more plainly. The law is not for the just, for the unjust. The law does not govern, and I chose that word carefully, govern the believer. There is plenty of good and helpful use for the law for us. Our small groups are studying Deuteronomy. And there's great benefit to that. Deuteronomy does not govern us. Deuteronomy is not a code book that we need to turn to. If it were, we'd all be in trouble because who's offered a sacrifice lately? Is anyone wearing polyester? You'd be in trouble, right? Um, and so Paul makes it clear that's not the function of the law. Point B, the true function of the law is that the law leads us to Christ. The law leads us to Christ and restrains sin in the world. The law leads us to Christ and restrains sin in the world. And so, listen to Galatians 3.24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law is meant to drive us through conviction of sin to Jesus. The law tells us here's what God demands. Here's what God requires. Here's what God would have of you. And the only proper response is, well, I can't do that. Well, then I need a savior. See, the problem the Pharisees had with the law is they thought the law was meant to be something you could do. And if you just tweak it and redefine some of your terms a little bit, well, you can turn it into something that, you know, you can sort of do. At least the Pharisees thought so. So Jesus comes along and blows that up. <laughs> Says, you can look on a woman to lust. You've committed adultery in your heart. How are you, how you doing now? And the point is to drive them 
to, well, I need help. Okay, there is help here. That's the purpose of the law. The law also restrains sin in the world. Listen to uh, Romans 2, 12 to 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And what Paul's saying is even unbelievers, by due to the evidence of the law in their heart and their conscience, are being held back from sin. You wonder why are, is the world not a worse place? Well, because God's given everyone, even unbelievers, consciences. The law is holding back sin in the world, and the law is driving us to Christ. But the law is not meant to be Christian. It's something we turn to, to, uh, to govern us, holding over our heads. And, and it becomes really problematic if you try to do that, because then you've got to pick and choose which parts of the law you're going to keep. Whenever I meet someone who tries to tell me they're trying to keep the law, my first question to them, first question, when's the last time you went to Jerusalem? Because according to Deuteronomy 16, three times a year, every able-bodied man has to go to Jerusalem. So when's the last time you went to Jerusalem? Well, I, uh, then don't tell me you're keeping the law. Don't tell me you're trying to keep the law. You're, you're just picking and choosing. And the New Testament is emphatic that if you break one part of the law, you break the whole thing. So I've identified a part of the law you aren't doing. Guess what? You're failing at keeping the law. That's not the law's point. We've been set free from the law to become slaves and servants of Christ. It's not that we're lawless, but according to 1 Corinthians 9, we are in law or under the law of Christ. Anyway, that's, that's a huge topic, and we have gone enough with that. Finally, Paul says this is in keeping with God's gospel and Paul's charge. And here, the text kind of comes around full circle. Now, if you'll remember, the chain of authority works like this. Paul says in verse 3, I urged, I charged you to remain in Ephesus so that you in turn could charge certain people not to teach any different teaching. So we got two links in the chain. But if you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, the first link in the chain is there. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God. See, even Paul isn't a free from authority. He's just doing what he's been told to do. And he brings us back around to this. He says in verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So Paul is entrusting things to Timothy to tell and charge other people to do, but that all tracks back to the living and good God who entrusted this to Paul. So if you're tracking the cord back to the wall, God entrusted Paul with a ministry. Paul is entrusting and charging Timothy to do something so that Timothy can turn around and charge and entrust men to teach the truth. And it comes full circle. And we recognize, in case any of us are wondering, is Paul being heavy-handed? He is just obeying his orders. And again, we see that this is God speaking. Because God told Paul what to tell Timothy to what to tell the teachers. 
And so we should obey this. We should revere this. This is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And then just one final, that word for blessed just means happy. Literally, it's the gospel of the glory of the happy God. We serve the happy God. And he's given us truth in his word. He's, he's given us his spirit to interpret it so that we can pure, have our hearts purified through faith, our consciousness informed. We can have a sincere faith and we can press on to love. That's the goal. And so all of this learning and all of this studying and all of this memorizing is essential and it's important. But if it doesn't press on, it's, it's useless. We might as well be studying the Bible code. So let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater and just, well, then we'll stop studying the Bible. But let's press on to maturity. Let's press on to love by faith. This we will do if the Lord permits. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord God, we just uh, thank you for your goodness today. We thank you for your grace. Lord, it is our heart's desire that you would bear the fruit of love in our lives, that you would grow it forth in us from pure hearts. Lord, and we know that the only way to get a pure heart is to know your son. And so, Lord, that's, that's got to be where we start, just coming to faith in your son, informing our consciences by the truth of your word, united and joined by faith to you. Lord, work out love in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Now be